I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Chaos at the top of the Premier League, and we're going to ignore it, largely. City and Liverpool lose, United and Spurs drop points. We'll touch on that, but once we do, we're going to focus on the bottom of the Premier League, and it's our relegation show. Aston Villa inching forward Newcastle, the weekend surprise result, and decimated wayward Bournemouth. Well, they're only decimated now. Welcome to the World Soccer Talk podcast, everybody. My name is Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. We're going to get to the bottom of the table in a minute, and we're going to devote most of the show to it. But first, let's talk about the new chaos at the top of the English Premier League. Karthik Krishnayar, my co-host, coming in now. And I'm going to exercise my privilege as the host of the show to start with a hot take, Karthik. And it's one that I couldn't help but embrace after Saturday's action. Right now, I think the product at the top of the Premier League, Karthik, especially with these favorites that we've been expecting to take over the league, City, Arsenal, United. If you watch soccer to see great athletes and great teams do great things the same way you might watch any of Europe's other leagues, right now the Premier League doesn't appear to be the place for you. I would agree with that. The Premier League at the top I think is weaker at the very top than Germany, than Spain, than maybe Italy, I I don't know. Maybe not Italy. Uh, and, and, and France. Italy's not a great place to watch entertainment either. But as far as balance in the league, and we get into this more in the, uh, in the show, England is it now. In fact, as uh, our listeners know, Christopher Harris and I were in Germany at this time last week. We spent uh, about a week over there. And Leverkusen's CEO even told us, even though they're a corporate back team with the uh, – and the stereotype in Germany is that Leverkusen has unlimited – of spending ability, which they don't, but that's the stereotype. They are now being outbid for players by teams at the bottom of the table in the Premier League because they're getting that much more TV money in England. So that tells you something. And Leverkusen's a team that's in Champions League just about every season. Well, that seems like the debate that we're going to end up centering on as we go through the top of the table here. A weekend after Manchester United again looked poor, Uh, City stumbled again, surprisingly. That might end up being the long-term story of the weekend, how much this current city exemplifies what we're going to see later in the season. But we also saw Liverpool stumble on Sunday. Spurs failed to get three points. Arsenal did get three points. Didn't look great against Sunderland. And only Leicester, the one team that doesn't seem to belong to that group, is actually playing well. And Kartik, I go back and forth with this because I look at the middle of the table and I see good teams, but I don't necessarily see teams that are so much better than the middle of the table in Germany or Spain or Italy. I just think you look at your, the results of the Premier League and Champions League, it's pretty clear that the top of the league is just coming back to the pack. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's very true. And there, there, 
with the exception of Manchester City, who of course were disappointing against Juventus in both games, they're in easy groups. Look, Manchester City's in a group with Wuchen Gladbach, who's really good right now. I think yeah. we might talk about that later in the show. And uh, Sevilla, who have have a lot of potential to be uh, to do damage in Europe, as they've shown in the past. But the other, uh, I, I thought the Man- Manchester United would walk out of their group, especially given Wolfsburg's previous history in Europe, which hasn't been so good when they've been in European competition. Uh, and uh, uh, PSV hasn't been good in European competition in, in almost 10 years, in almost a decade. Uh, Arsenal struggling in the group. They're struggling is unbelievable to me. And Chelsea's had some hiccups. So yeah. it, it's, it's very, and, and quite frankly, Spurs have had some hiccups they should not have had in Europa League. I, I, I don't know what to make of this. At the same time, when I look at clubs like Stoke and the quality of players they have, and I know I've talked about Stoke a lot this season, and uh, Stoke Alona, you, you just think, well, maybe the middle of the Premier League is better than these other leagues, Crystal Palace also. But then I, I take a look at Gary Neville just got the job, right? At, uh, at Valencia. Uh, Valencia. Right. And it's unfortunate that an English coach, an aspiring English coach, has to go to a big club in Spain to get that kind of job because, unfortunately, the, the big English clubs don't seem to want to hire guys like him. But So he's gone to Valencia, and I thought, okay, let me compare this squad, which is sitting in ninth right now in La Liga, to uh, Premier League squads at the middle of the table. And quite frankly, Valencia has a better squad than most of the Premier League right. teams that we're talking about. So, uh, yeah, you might be right. The middle of those leagues, uh, I, I watched Leverkusen play Schalke last week. Two, both teams are outside of uh, Champions League places right now in the Bundesliga, and there's more talent on display in that game than in most Premier League games. And I think it's very difficult to argue about the strength or argue for the strength of the middle of the Premier League when Leicester has cut through that in the last year and a half, just sliced through it. And you see Watford, Watford's sitting ninth now, and last year they were in the championship. If the middle of the Premier League was so incredibly strong, like people say, Kartik, the teams that come up from the championship would be thrown straight back down, unable to cut through right. all that strength and in the middle. More, and more importantly, and I, I point this out as we're uh, recording this right before MLS Cup, and I used to work for three and a half years in the second division in the United States, we see a lot of NASL players go to MLS and flop. Only a few have made it and been successful MLS players to jump from second division to first division in terms of player quality immense in the United States. In England, that's not the case. We're seeing Ngallo pick up where he left off in the championship. Uh, Mares was in the championship two seasons ago. He's arguably the best player in the Premier League this season. Uh, Jamie Vardy is the leading scorer in the Premier League, has broken mm-hmm. the Premier League scoring records. He was in the championship two seasons ago. Uh, Callum Wilson was well on his way to that kind of season before he got injured for Bournemouth. Uh, I, uh, you're seeing some guys who are doing wonderful things for Crystal Palace that were in the championship just a few seasons ago. I, I think that that's an indictment of the overall quality of the Premier League. It's not just one or two guys. Oh, Deli Ali also was in League One last season. And he's now uh, the guy that England as a nation is pinning its hopes on for the Euros. So. Mm-hmm. It's, we're not talking about one or two guys. We're talking about like five or six guys. Well, the Premier League certainly is having a moment on that front. And this weekend, they had quite a moment at the top of the table, too. Let's start walking down some of these surprise results. Let's start at the Britannia Kartik, where Stoke City is a team that you and I and Lawrence have talked about a lot on recent shows as a team that's transcending their form by getting good results. This weekend, I certainly think they were the better team against Manchester City. And the lingering question after that 2-0 win where Marko Anantovic had two goals is, why is Manchester City continuing to play so poorly? Yeah, I think it's it's a combination of factors. I mean, one, the injury list for uh, 
Manchester City is abnormally long. I, I don't think anyone is going to deny that. And if you look at the City's team sheet yesterday, they had four senior players on the bench, three youth players. Now, of course, one of those youth players is Hinaccio, who has proven to be a pretty reliable Premier League performer. Uh, but uh, two guys uh, in, in uh, I can't remember if it was even Brandon Barker, who it was, and uh, and and uh, uh, I can't even remember. Was it Mafeo, who the other one, or Manu mm. Garcia, who will never play in a Premier League game unless there's an uh, would absolutely be uh, forced to. So that's one point. But I think another point is that there's a lack of leadership in the team when certain guys are injured. Manchester City, despite the reputation of spending big money and and uh, and buying a club, has had the same core of leaders in the team since around the time of the takeover. Uh, two in particular, v- Vincent Company and Pablo Zabaleta. Uh, Zabaleta has played once this season and is injured again, and Company has uh, been on and off injured. It's so noticeable when those two guys don't play. And then Yaya Torre is the other kind of uh, leader who, who communicates with other players, uh, kind of uh, is very demonstrative on the pitch. He's injured. And so you're not getting the kind of leadership you need from guys like De Bruyne, who are new to the club, and Sterling. Uh, Kolarov is the one guy who's a bit of a leader that's still left in this, this yeah. playing squad on, on the field, but he can't do it alone. So I, I think there's a lack of leadership. And then the third point is the manager, who I have defended for several years now. I love Manuel Pellegrini. I still believe Manchester City do not want to sack him and replace him with Pep Guardiola. I really believe that. Oh, and I, to, this, to this point, I've been proven correct on that. However, um, Pellegrini's going to have to figure things out, and he's becoming more um, animated in his press conferences. He's gone from being a very boring interview, a very stereotypical interview who always defends his teams, defends his players, to being quite animated in some of these recent press conferences, beginning with that Liverpool game. So either he's beginning to feel the pressure and come unglued, and he's reacting accordingly with his player selection and and, and team talks, or... um, Maybe he's doing it to try and get a response out of the team. But it's, uh, it's a different time. But, uh, Richard, I guess the, the thing I'll end on with this is that we see these sorts of swoons from City all the time. And this has become uh, an annual, annual thing. And generally it happens when Yaya Torre is not in the team. So maybe that's the silver lining for Manchester City. However, he did play in that Liverpool game and played very poorly. So uh, that's... Uh, maybe an indicator that it's 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 beyond just getting Tory back and fixing this. Yeah, it's amazing to me that even more than ever, teams seem to be taking on the personalities of their manager. And we've implicitly talked about that all season with Arsenal, how Arsene Wenger is so kind of fragile with his reliance on his theory and his plan A, that when plan B has to come into effect, we end up seeing some poor results. Jose Mourinho, we see what's going on with Chelsea right now. We see the positives for the most part with Liverpool as they're taking on the personality of their manager. Pellegrini goes through these spells with his teams where he has lulls in the season. It's because he doesn't amp up the tension during those moments. He has a much more he has a personality that's better served for a long-term approach and what that means is that Manchester City is going to go through two or three of these spells per season and uh, two times recently it hasn't hurt them they've claimed titles but we'll see what happens this year as the title race looks more crowded than ever uh, let's talk about the top of that title race Kartik Leicester City 3-0 win at Swansea I don't think we're surprised about this we'll talk about Swansea struggles in a minute but the lingering question with Leicester is how long 
how long do we go before we start honestly considering them not only a top four contender, a title contender? And while that question sounds almost trite at this point, I don't think anybody has adequately answered it. After all, neither you nor I nor Lawrence have ever put Leicester in our end-of-year top fours, yet here they are, two points clear at the top of the Premier League through 15 rounds. Yeah, and I'm beginning to hedge on that. Not completely. They're not going to be in my top four this week, but they are overall the end of the season top four. But I said that there's this seven-match stretch coming up after the international break where uh, they, they, they're going to be found out, they're going to be undone, and then they'll fall back to mid-table, and they'll probably finish eighth or ninth in the, in, in, in the league. Instead, those first three games of that seven-game stretch – have been a win at Newcastle 3-0. I thought that that was going to be a massive correction game where Newcastle was going to come good and Leicester was going to be exposed. Instead, it was the opposite. Leicester ran them off the pitch. And then the 1-1 at home against Manchester United where uh, I missed the second half of the game because I was flying over to this Leverkusen-Schalke game, but uh, was able to catch it on German television on re- repeat that night or the, the next night, the night of the Leverkusen game, so Sunday night, and felt like Leicester were the far superior team in the second half when they didn't get a goal to win. And then this game against Swansea where they cut him open from about the 10th minute on at the Liberty in, at a point where you would think Swansea really badly needed a response and a result. So I don't know. I, I, the deck seems to be stacked against them, and they keep getting results. And not just results, but resounding results. What were uh, comeback victories against the likes of Aston Villa earlier in the season now are becoming just thumpings of, uh, of teams that are near the bottom of the table, the kinds of thumpings that Arsenal, Manchester City, and Manchester United should be inflicting to the same competition, but seem completely incapable of doing. So right now, Leicester is the best team in the league. And I think the one thing that makes this conversation different than the conversations about, say, last year with West Ham and Southampton is the Premier League at the top is not good this year. There's more of an opportunity than ever to not only snare a top six or top four spot, but to snare that number one spot. There's no Chelsea running away with the league this year. In fact, as rounds go by, as results accumulate, we see more fragility, not consolidation with these teams that are supposed to be contending for the title. So even if Leicester slips a little bit, that just means that they're going to be like every other team in the league. And we have to take that more seriously than we would West Ham's lingering top four place last year. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. And I think the approach to management now has to be evaluated for other clubs and other managers because Claudio Ranieri has been mocked in the past for his managerial approach. He's a very kind of likable figure in the dressing room. Uh, He engages his players. He doesn't rule through fear the way a guy like Jose Mourinho or Roberto Mancini does. He he doesn't, uh, or Sir Alex Ferguson with certain players. And this approach of uh, Ranieri, taking players out for pizza, giving them days off, flying them to holiday uh, between games to Norway, which he's done following this victory at uh, Swansea, is working. Uh, The the non-fear hey, if you do well, I'm going to reward you, not keep pushing your buttons, approach is working with this squad of players. Mm-hmm. And it's something that maybe other managers and other clubs have to look at, even though it goes against all of the conventional wisdom in the book now about how you manage professional football players. We have more teams at the top of the table to talk about. We'll talk about them after this break. But first, let's run down the action across the league on this 15th match day of the Premier League season. On Saturday, Stoke City opened the weekend with two goals from Marko Anantovic and earned a place in the table's top half after a 2-0 win over visiting Manchester City. Southampton, coming off their 6-1 drubbing at the hands of Liverpool midweek, needed a late goal from Oriel Romeo to salvage a 1-1 draw with last place Aston Villa. Jimmy Vardy's goal-scoring streak came to an end, but Riyad Mahrez had three goals as Leicester won at Swansea 3-0. 
Watford is up to 9th after their 2-0 win over visiting Norwich, and Arsenal got goals from Joel Campbell, Olivier Giroud, and a centrally deployed Aaron Ramsey in its 3-1 win over Sunderland. At the Hawthorns, a pair of first-half goals left Spurs drawn with West Brom 1-1, Manchester United played West Ham to a 0-0, of course, and a late goal from Glenn Murray allowed Bournemouth to take a 1-0 win at Chelsea. On Sunday, an own goal from Martin Skirtle and some Georgino Wijnaldum insurance late in the match gave Newcastle a shock 2-0 win over Liverpool. That win pushed the Mad Pies to the edge of safety, now even with Bournemouth and Norwich on 13 points, but still in 18th place. One back is Sunderland and Aston Villa, even after their draw, have only 6 points through 15 rounds. At the top of the table, Leicester City is back in the catbird seat, 2 points ahead of Arsenal. City is next, another point back with United holding on to 4th place. We're going to take our first break now, come back with a bit of a mea culpa, and then dive into the part of the league we normally save for last, the bottom three and the Premier League's relegation battle. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's time for a little bit of a mea culpa, and I'm sorry Lawrence McKenna is not going to be with us this week. He had another engagement come up. Uh, but at the beginning of last show, we had a really good discussion about Jamie Vardy, a discussion that I was really happy with because I don't think that we do see enough people debating Jamie Vardy the same way that Luis Suarez was debated. Unfortunately, my lack of preparation for that discussion confounded two scandals that happened to Lester this summer. One, the sex tape scandal that happened during their tour of Asia, and one, Jamie Vardy's uh, racially racially laced comments at a casino this summer. You can detect even now there's some stumbling in my words as I'm not 100% sure uh, how we got into trouble last week. Uh, my research during our show didn't go as smoothly as it should have, so I apologize for that confusion. Kartik, there are a couple of teams that we forgot to talk about during last segment. Let's start with Liverpool, because there was an opportunity with this trip on Sunday to St. James's Park for them to jump right into the title race. Had they won, they would have been within two points of Arsenal, and we would have had a completely different discussion than the one that we're going to have. But Jorginho Wijnaldum's forcing two goals, one an own goal, another that he scored late, gave Newcastle a shock result, one that I'm sure we'll talk about in a few seconds. But does this result, from Liverpool's perspective, change your view of where they are under Klopp? No, I think they're under Klopp. There is a renewed sense of uh, enthusiasm and energy around the club. They have a lot of injuries, or a fair number of injuries, and he's still figuring out his squad, uh, who, who, who plays well where. And in a game like this, it seemed like Christian Venteke was very ineffective mm-hmm. as far as the guy you want to deploy up front. I don't think Klopp believes that Daniel Sturridge can give you performances week in and week out with his injury problems and with his fitness issues. So he, he, he's mixing a match. Origi uh, has looked fairly good since Klopp became the manager, and that's a player we know uh, from history at Dortmund that he, he liked and tried to sign, and uh, he was probably just going to be discarded at Liverpool. So that's a guy that's now worked his way in and looked good midweek in the League Cup. I thought looked pretty good when he came on in this game. Uh, but he's still figuring out his squad, and Coutinho's injury uh, doesn't help them. I, I think... Klopp is, is such a good manager, and again, I, maybe I'm jaded now because I'm coming back uh, from a, a trip to Germany where I talked, where Klopp was the subject because of, of Christopher Harris and my expertise in English football. Uh, everybody wants to talk to us about Jurgen Klopp in that country. 
I just sense that regardless of what happens this season with this group of players, next season they're going to be very good, and two seasons from now they might, they're probably going to win the league or at least push to win the league. So uh, maybe too much too soon. Maybe our expectations were too high given the good work he had done in the first two months and the weakness at the top of the league, which I guess is going to be a persistent theme of what we talk about mm. this season. That weakness opens the door for a team like Spurs, but unfortunately they stumbled this weekend too. 1-1 draw at the Hawthorns. Another team with a manager that's generating a lot of excitement, but Kartik, at some point, I think we need to at least explore the idea that maybe Mauricio Pochettino isn't delivering three points where a lot of uh, times Spurs are getting one, this being a prime example. And as much as we want to be positive about somebody who obviously has such a great effect on Spurs... These are becoming missed opportunities for them, and it's starting to look a little bit like the Spurs stories we've seen in the past. Yeah, I, these results, I mean, I, you know how high everybody who listens to this show and reads our site knows how high I am on Pochettino and, and felt that he would be the guy to fix Spurs syndrome, as I call it. And he's fixing it, but it hasn't. This is the sort of result which just is a Spurs result, right? I, there's no other way to to. to to, clarify, uh, to, to characterize it, this is the kind of game they jumped out ahead at West Brom and they gave up a, a, an equalizer and didn't really push for a winner. They need another striker to supplement uh, Kane. Obviously, Son, uh, a player that I heard a lot about this week because I was at Leverkusen, of course. Uh, Son and uh, Clinton as signings are, are kind of supplementary players, but they're not out-and-out strikers. They're good players. Son especially, very good player. But not a guy you can deploy up front. So... They need another striker. They didn't get Berahino. Berahino was looking very despondent on, on the bench in this match. Uh, the interesting thing about Pochettino is, though, there's so much respect for the job he's done still. I saw in Gary Neville's, one of Gary Neville's uh, interviews when he took the Valencia job, he said, the manager I'm most emulating, the guy I most like right now is Pochettino. That's, that's the way I'm going to manage at Valencia, which I thought was very interesting that he picked mm. Pochettino and he picked the Spurs manager. But I think he was trying to pick a guy who was a former player like him, young, kind of young. But, um, Maybe somebody who had also managed in La Liga before. Well, well that's true, too, right? Uh, but he, I, there's a lot of respect for Pochettino, but Spurs have a historical vice on them when they, go, when they have matches like this. And yes, now they're unbeaten in 14, but about half those games were draws. Mm-hmm. So um, you're not going to win the league by drawing every other game. And, and I, I think that this is, a, this is a problem, particularly despite the Liverpool result this week. With Klopp at Liverpool, my thought that Spurs are definitely in the top four is now wobbling. I still think they get there and Liverpool finishes fifth, but uh, look, uh, Klopp is getting three points in some places where they shouldn't get three points, and Tottenham doesn't have any of those results this year. Hmm. Uh, one more team that we want to talk about at the top of the table before shifting our focus to the relegation battle. Arsenal, in addition to Leicester, was the only team this week at the top of the table to get three points. Three to one victory, good result. I came away a little bit concerned about Arsenal's defense. A couple of chances in this game for the Black Cats that really should have been converted. This game should have been closer than the final score was. Yeah, this goes back to the argument, Richard. Uh, Arsenal, that much better because they got Petr Cech? Uh, Maybe, because I think Sunderland certainly gets a 2-1 lead at at some point early in that second half if there's another keeper. He made some very good saves. He controlled kind of... The, uh, he, he communicated well with the back line. Sunderland were all over them for about 15 minutes to open the second half. Or is Czech just kind of masking other things and the results that they normally drop, the games they drop, they're going to drop anyway. So that's the question. Was Petr Czech a 10-point, 8-10-point 
boost signing. And if it is, Arsenal might win the league. And if it's not, then uh, they're going to finish third or fourth like they always do. Because I don't see anything different in this team, unfortunately. I, I, Mets at Ozil is having a fantastic season. Beyond that, I'm not sure Arsenal is is better, other than maybe Bellerin and uh, and Montreal have come good at the fullback positions. But in the midfield, up, up top, I don't see any difference between this and previous Arsenal teams, with the exception of Ozil having a really good season. Yeah, Ozil, that ball for Campbell to put in the perfect spot to keep it away uh, from the keeper and allow that goal. That was that was a great ball. Subtly, I think we're getting a little bit too used to Metsud Ozil being amazing this season. Let's go ahead and shift our focus, as promised, to the bottom of the table, a relegation battle that has become much more interesting in recent weeks. Over the first couple months of the season, we saw the same three teams in those bottom three spots and started to give up on Sunderland, Newcastle, and Aston Villa. And although those three teams are the ones that still occupy the relegation spots in the Premier League, there's a little bit more hope for two of those teams. But Kartik, let's start with the one that seems mired in the bottom three. And I think we'd be a little bit surprised if they claw their way out of it at this point. Aston Villa got a 1-1 result at Southampton this weekend, their sixth point of the season. Uh, t- tell me what your current thoughts are on Remy Guard's team. Do you see them making progress? It depends. I guess it's relative. Yeah, I see them making progress. They were able to withstand a flurry, which should have had Southampton up 3 or 4 nil in the first mm-hmm. 20 or 25 minutes, get a goal, kind of a poacher's goal from a full uh, from a central defender, Julian Lescott, which uh, <laughs> was good to see. And then they let Romeo come in and get that, that equalizer, yeah. but they held on for the point. Some so, amazing corner kick defending in this game. Yeah, so I think maybe we're seeing some some grittiness and some resourcefulness, but they have six points through 15 games, which means realistically they're going to have to get um, 23 matches left. They're going to have to get about 32, 31, mm-hmm. 32 points. I, I just don't – they're going to have to average uh, a – point and a half or almost a point and a half a game you just don't see it with this team yeah that would just be an incredible turnaround and you alluded to the beginning of this game I think the one thing that was so distressing for me is you still see the effort with Villa's players it's just player for player they're just not as good and Sunderland kind of lost their focus and lost their intensity and allowed Villa to get back into the game poor corner kick defending before halftime gave Villa the lead and uh, Southampton wasn't able to get three points from this one I, I don't know I don't know if there's enough in the cupboard, really, for Remy Guard here. When you see no. when you see them go up against a Southampton team that's struggling so much, I think Southampton is down to 13th in the league at this point, and they looked so second best over that first 20 or 25 minutes. It's really discouraging, and I think that's partly what maybe separates them from Newcastle and Sunderland. Let's talk about Newcastle first because they did have a good result this weekend. Kartik, the inconsistency of this team, I did not see this result coming. No, I didn't either. I thought it would be, in fact, the opposite. And I've said all along, people who listen to the show know this, that Newcastle wasn't going to be in trouble. They were going to get out of trouble. McLaren is a good uh, tactical manager and a good, uh, and they have a good enough squad. Now, of course, what it, people have talked about in the last two weeks is that McLaren might be a good tactical manager, but he's not a good man, man manager. Hmm. He's not a good uh, a coach, right? I mean, he's a good coach. He's not a good manager. Uh, however you would describe that. He's not good dealing with personalities, and that's gotten him everywhere he's been, and it's only been at places like Twente or Middlesbrough where they haven't had personalities and, and huge uh, egos in the dressing room that he's been successful at, at uh, Forest and Derby and, and uh, Wolfsburg and now at Newcastle and England. He's had all these problems. So uh, that's a good point, uh, but somehow he got them up for this game. He got them uh, up for it, and maybe it's just Liverpool and the Klopp aspect Maybe the players were, were, were uh, got up themselves, but this was a uh, pretty tidy performance from Newcastle. I thought even before they got that first goal that they were 
the better side. And part of it was uh, Ben Teke is kind of an immobile player up front, and, and Klopp doesn't necessarily like to do, can't necessarily do all the things he wants to do with uh, Ben Teke up front. Lana didn't get the start. Uh, Ibe, I thought, was pretty good today. Uh, he was one Liverpool player that stood out as, as playing well for me. But there were, um, th- this wasn't the best Liverpool performance. And, and, and heck, uh, Newcastle, for the first time, showed a lot of fight in a while. Sissoko, in particular, he, I think he's the guy that defines Newcastle, right? Because when he's really good, you think he's one of the, the top 20 or 25 players in this league and could get a transfer to a big club or maybe even back to, to a big club in France. And then when he's off, he's terrible. And today he was very good. Hmm. It's that inconsistency that you kind of highlighted with Newcastle that we're talking about, it seems in contrast to what we see from uh, their rival Sunderland now that seem to have achieved a certain level of performance under Sam Allardyce, even if that level of performance didn't produce a result this weekend. But even in that game, you could see that this is a team that at least has some kind of framework in place. They're pretty consistently going with three central defenders now. Uh, they've got Jan Vila doing a good job in it, although he didn't really close down Metsud Ulsel on that pass that we referred to earlier. Even though they lost by two goals this weekend, Kartik, I think Black Cat supporters have a lot of reason to believe that the Sam Allardyce effect is going to carry them to safety. Well, this is why you hire a manager like Allardyce. You have managers who complain that they inherit personnel and they try and force personnel to play their style of football, right? Uh, Allardyce hasn't played this 3-5-2 or 5-3-2 much in his career. No. This is not the Allardyce style. He just found the, the, he found the kind of club he had, the kind of personnel he had, and adapted to it. And this is actually, this formation has made Jan and Villa, who is kind of the crown jewel transfer they've had recently. If you, if you follow his career, he's a guy who I think a lot of people thought would be on Arsenal or Chelsea or a club like that at this point, or PSG. He, this formation, maybe not in this game as much, but in other games, the Crystal Palace game, for example, two weeks ago, has allowed him to dictate the tempo and... Uh, pace of that midfield and how they play and he's been very good Uh, this is another example why I think Allardyce is is really an underrated manager and they're going to stay up I mean I thought that they were pretty good for 60 minutes in this game and this is the problem with Arsenal right there are a lot of games that they're winning even the game against Watford a couple weeks ago where we're saying the team that they should dispose of easily was pretty good for 60 or 65 minutes Mm -hmm. this is a recurring theme with Arsenal also so at some point you want to see Arsenal just come out and take a game to the opposition, and, and they, they don't do that very often anymore. Hmm. Uh, regarding Sunderland, the one thing that I'm a little bit worried about, I guess I, you touched on MVS, so uh, it'd be good to get your comments on this, is this weekend they started him with Toivonen in the middle, and it just it looked pretty weak. At least it looked like one man was trying to... Uh, trying to lock down the middle by himself. And it, yeah. it, it puts him in a situation where he kind of has to be Etienne Capu, it seems like. And Capu has had such success this year, has been one of the better players at his positions in, in the league. But it also seems like a very high bar to set for somebody. They, putting Mvia in a position where he really needs to be one of the best midfielders in the league for them to have success. And maybe that's possible, Kartik, but I also think that people might be a little bit right to worry about that, considering this is Mvia's first year in the Premier League. Yeah, and he's shown the flashes in the previous games, but he wasn't quite as good in this game. And so that is one concern. I think another concern is just the inconsistency of their strikers. They have, if you look on paper, between uh, uh, Fletcher and Defoe and Jermaine Lands and Barini, they have really a good striker core. But they, none of these guys can consistently score goals anymore. So it, it's, a, uh, it's a dilemma for Allardyce who to pick uh, for each game. And he's going to have to get some sort of... Uh, 
performance, uh, lightning in the bottle out of one of those guys. Obviously, Barini kind of did it for them two years ago when he was on loan from Liverpool. So maybe he's the guy. Or Defoe, we know, can poach goals. But one of those four guys I mentioned are going to really have to step up. I think one of them will. I just can't tell you which one it is. Maybe most likely Barini would be the, the most likely of those four. Or maybe it might end up being Duncan, Duncan Watmore, who has been kind of a... Oh, well, yeah, player. right. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. between him and DeAndre Yedlin, a couple of young players, uh, seemingly embracing spots in Big Sam's uh, first 11. Uh, let's talk about another of the big surprise results for the week of the weekend, Kartik, although Chelsea losing at this point is not that big of a surprise. They've lost four of their last seven at Stamford Bridge. But this was such a great three points for Bournemouth for the same reason that the last two results that they've gotten were great results. They do not have a team right now that is very healthy. They've lost so many key players. But to be able to bring somebody like Len Murray off the bench, get that goal, get three points at Stamford Bridge, it's starting to give me some reason to think that Eddie Howe's underlying philosophy maybe rode out this troublesome period of time, and now they've got some new life. Yeah, if they can get some points over the Christmas period, they're going to need to get to about 20 points, 22 points maybe uh, by that, that the end of that period, and then see if they can get to 25 points or so before Callum Wilson and Max Gradle return in February. Maybe it'll be early March. But if they can get to 25, Leicester was at 22 when they made their run last season. I could see Bournemouth if there were 25, 26 points when those two guys coming come back, staying up. They just need to get some more results like this one. This was a great result. Gets them to 13 points, gets them within kind of a breathing room of, of, of within sight of that 20-point mark, I'm saying, at the end of December. Because uh, they will stay up if they get those guys back fit and they're in a position to stay up. I, they lost uh, – people who didn't get to see the players that they lost early this season, Bournemouth looked like a team, quite frankly, uh, Richard, in spite of that, that loss to Villa in the first match of the season, uh, that uh, now looks like a completely abnormal result. They look like a team that once they figured out the Premier League would finish 13th or 14th and, and be fine. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the way they were playing football and the number of chances they were creating, the number of chances they were creating early in matches, especially. You know, what you see with, uh, with, with, with smaller teams is they often sit back or even if they're trying to play football, they don't create chances until early in the second half or late in the first half. Bournemouth were, were all over some teams early in the season, even when they weren't getting results. This game, same thing. They created so many chances from minute 10 to about 25 until Chelsea kind of took the game back over at that point. Uh, but they got their just rewards at the end of the match, getting that goal from Glenn Murray, even though it does appear he, he, he probably was. was offside. Yeah, it was, it was pretty clear. But in those situations where the keeper um, bolts off the line, it seems like everybody, in the even the officials, get confused. Well, I, I, sh- I should mention Bournemouth has uh, – I, I don't want to get into this uh, idea of looking at an alternate table, but Bournemouth was denied a, a clear goal and then – uh, it was uh, Liverpool got a goal that shouldn't have stood uh, in that game. And then against Swansea, Swansea got a goal, which was clearly offside to draw that game. So they've been denied three or four points already on poor calls. So this might be just, again, another correction. Yeah, and I hate looking at stuff like that. 90-minute matches, they're about the challenges that are presented to you. Chelsea had a unfortunate challenge presented to them, but you have to overcome those challenges. And if you can't, well, these are the results that you get. We have a couple of which, uh, which I should say, a lot, some managers embrace because Gary Monk, to his credit, he's under a lot of fire. Richard, we should mention mm-hmm. this. We already talked about this game. He said, "Okay, there's controversy over the first two Leicester goals, but 
uh, we were second best. We were badly beaten anyway. Uh, because as we, as you know, Lester could have scored six or seven goals in that game, so he didn't. He didn't use the officiating as an excuse, and I, I like seeing that. Yeah. On the other hand, Jose Mourinho continuing to find more trouble with Chelsea's results. We're going to take a break right now. We have a couple other teams of concern that we're going to dra- address when we come back after the break. Norwich is now very close to the bottom, and Swansea continues to find themselves relegation in battle. But stick with us. This is the World Soccer Talk podcast. Welcome back, everybody. It's time to go to Spain, where perhaps the biggest non-FIFA news of the week took place. While Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid took care of business on Saturday, beating Granada and Hatafe, Barcelona dropped points for only the third time this season, drawing 1-1 at Valencia. That would normally be the story, but instead, we have Gary Neville. On Monday, Valencia officially parted ways with Nuno Espirito Santo, the man who guided Los Che back into Champions League last season. In his place, owner Peter Lim was brought in, has brought in Neville, a man not only respected for his playing career at Manchester United and his amazing punditry on Sky Sports, but is also a business partner of Lim. Lim owns 50% of Salford City FC, the club Neville and Manchester United's Class of 92 have invested in, as well as a few hotel and entertainment properties around Manchester. Neville wasn't on the sidelines on Saturday, but he was in the stands at the Mestalla, and he takes over Los Che for this week's Champions League match against Leon. Kartik, you wrote about the Neville appointment on the site. What are your thoughts? Well, that first game against Leon is massive. Talk about being thrown in on the deep end. That's a game that Valencia has to win to keep going in Champions League, depending on other results, right? I mean, they, they, yeah. there are scenarios where they could get in. They need to they have draw. a better result than Ghent, basically. Right, you're right. So there, there's a scenario where they could draw and Ghent loses, uh, but Ghent, Ghent is at home. So they, they're probably going to need to win and hope uh, that that Ghent uh, drops points uh, to... Uh, to Zanit, uh, who haven't... Who to are Zanit, perfect, who haven't... Who are perfect so far. Points, right. Yeah. yeah, but don't have any real incentive in, in this game, although right. this, this uh, Andre Villas-Boas is, is moving on after the group stage of the Champions League. So oh, yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, so this might be the, just a farewell game for, for the manager, at least in Europe. So, Little Russia. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so that's the uh, that, that that's a big big game, but I think what this is going to do is it's going to give an English manager some experience managing uh, a different style of football, different types of players, and also create a a, a context to which maybe more British managers will move abroad, more British. Uh, uh, players maybe will even move abroad. There will be a renewed focus on the rest of La Liga now in England. Uh, currently, people just look at Barcelona and Real Madrid. They look at Barcelona because they're Barcelona. They look at Real Madrid because uh, Gareth Bale is there and Rafa Benitez is there now and, and Cristiano. So they um, they don't always look at Real Madrid in, in Britain. That's why I mentioned it. Uh, Barcelona has a, a loyal following, a strong following in, in, in the UK. No other Spanish club does. So this will put some more focus on La Liga and maybe some more appreciation in Britain about the deficiencies of the Premier League, the deficiencies of English players and English managers. Uh, At the same time, it also could create a situation where England produces a manager that now has this kind of high-level experience because Valencia is a big club and a guy that might be ready to take over the England job. My favorite is Eddie Howe. I would would love to see him manage England, but I'm realistic in knowing that DFA is probably not going to go in that direction. So uh, this gives uh, Gary Neville in England a shot. It it probably shouldn't be understated how shocking this news was, although three or four days later kind of makes sense, particularly with the business connection and the longtime connection between Lim and Neville. 
it still came out of nowhere, and it's going to be very interesting to see what Sky and Sports it came, does. And it came right after the bookies had slashed the odds on Neville becoming the manager at Fulham, mm-hmm. interestingly enough. that That is very interesting. Uh, I, I'm going to be interested to see what Sky Sports does. Gary Neville had become a very quick icon with his punditry, and it'll be very interesting to see if they Sky don't have uh, They don't have another guy like him. Nobody honestly. does. Nobody does. I think we're going to miss that. Players of the Week, Kartik, I'll go ahead and go first, where I had one of Saturday's heroes locked into the spot before we saw what happened on Sunday, and I'm going to go with Jorginho Naldum, uh, creating both of those goals against a very difficult opponent, giving Newcastle a much-needed three points, uh, and reminding us of some of the spark that he brought over during his first matches of the season. He was the Eredivisie's Player of the Year last year, obviously a very talented player, and f- did the did the biggest part this weekend in delivering Newcastle a crucial win. He's my player of the week. Kartik? It'd be so easy to just go with Mares, but you could pick Mares every week, right? right. So I'm going to go with Boyan. Boyan was amazing this week. We know how good he is when he's fit. And this is, again, about a guy finding his level. I mean, I've heard so much, so many der- deris- uh, you know, derogatory comments about the player from fans of Milan and fans of Roma and, and Barca fans who thought he was going to be Messi's sidekick because it certainly seemed that way the first year or year and a half Boyan was in the team and they had mm-hmm. just bought Pedro and it looked like that was going to be the front line. Messi, uh, once Pep started playing Messi up front, Boyan on one flank, Pedro on the other, uh, it didn't work out that way, right? I mean, it did for Pedro for a while and then obviously once he bought Neymar, Pedro's days were, uh, his shelf life was, was limited. He's now in the Premier League also. But Boyan then bounced around a bit. Uh, he's still only 24 or 25. We forget this because we've been, you know, we've been following Boyan for a decade now. <laughs> uh, but he looks so good in this game. His movement was so fluid. Uh, his uh, connections with, uh, uh, with Shakiri. Now, Shakiri's a player that uh, we've been waiting to see this. Right, and we thought, yeah. well, maybe Shakiri's a guy that peaked too early. Maybe that year he had under Heinkins at uh, Bayern before it began to go bad. Maybe that was an aberration. Maybe it was because he was twenty or twenty-one. Uh, he's not that level player. This game, he was so good. He was a he was a nine out of ten, ten out of ten, and so was Boyan. And Boyan on the ball, his vision, uh, his link-up play, fantastic. Uh, just quick note: I want to mention Jeff Cameron was in the midfield for Stoke in this game. Uh, the American international who never plays in the midfield for the United States. And he looked pretty good in that midfield. Now, of course, when you're playing with Shakiri and Boyan in the same midfield, you probably will look good. He doesn't have that level player to play with with the United States. But another consideration for Jurgen Klinsmann. Uh, that game and the Mucha Gladbach game give him a lot to think about. Hmm. Kartik, let's get to some user feedback uh, from Twitter. Robert, Sunny SoCal Rob 25 asks us about the League Cup. Uh, four teams remaining. Everton is going to be taking on Manchester City. Uh, Stoke is going to be taking on Liverpool. Which two teams, or which teams are going to be taking this competition most seriously, Kartik? Hmm. I, I would say Everton would be taking it the most seriously of the four because they've got this uh, long run without a trophy. They haven't won a trophy since Paul Rideout's famous goal. Uh, to beat Manchester United in mm. 1995. They've in, never in, won the think, League Cup, remarkably. And they've never won the League Cup. Uh, and they've been to semifinals and finals, a lot of cup competitions recently. But uh, there's something about um, about this competition which uh, uh, Manuel Pellegrini seems to embrace for, for some reason. I mean, when Roberto Mancini was the manager, this was a chance to bloodlet all the young players. So Pellegrini hasn't done that, which I should have mentioned in the Manchester City section is part of the reason Manchester City is in this position now. Uh, Pellegrini complained about the fatigue of the team, but he didn't need to trot out all his first teamers against Hull. Hmm. Uh, let's be honest. And he didn't have to do it in previous League Cup games against lower 
division opposition, but he did. So maybe he's the manager taking it the most seriously. Um, ultimately, though, uh, Stoke is playing the best football of the four teams that are left, and it, it, we're a month out, but they would be my pick to win the League Cup right now. Yeah, I, I guess I'll go with Liverpool. I think that it's very unlikely that Klopp changes his approach to where at this point he has he has rotated his squad, but he's taken all the games pretty seriously, and I, I think that'll continue in the next uh, in January. If it does continue, I think they're probably the team best equipped. It's a great Final one. Four, though. I mean, it, it really is. Times we we have uh, a lower division team that seeps in, or a team that doesn't really care about the competition. Uh, this time, I think we've got four teams that are going to take it pretty seriously, and, all, and four teams, all of which we could see winning this cup. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are going to be hoping for that Everton Liverpool final. Uh, Kartik, let's talk. Let's jump back into the relegation race. Let's talk about Norwich. Uh, this is a team that I think we were all high on at the beginning of the season, and for me, I still harbor hopes that they're going to get everything going. I, I respect Alex Neal as a manager. A lot of players on this team I like a lot, but the results speak for themselves. 2-0 loss at Watford this weekend perhaps isn't shocking, but the shocking part is, after a series of bad results, they're now even with uh, with Newcastle in 18th place. <laughs> Obviously not the where they want to be. So what's going on with Norwich? Why has this collection of players that we really thought was going to succeed climbing back up from the championship failed to find success so far? Gosh, I don't know, because the games I've watched... Even when they're not getting results, they're playing pretty well, right? They're just not finishing chances. Uh, defensively, there are one or two errors in games that are costing them. It, it, it's tough to put your finger on with Norwich, uh, other than to say maybe they're limited finishing. And this is what did them in uh, two seasons ago when they got relegated. That team under Chris Hutton wasn't very bad. wasn't that bad. It was just that they had brought in um, they had brought in Gary Hooper and they had brought in. Uh, why am I forgetting his name? Who from Holland? Who went to uh, went to France after Van Wolfsinkel? Uh, yeah, Van Wolfsinkel, who couldn't do anything, and it was one of these things where they the on the balance of play, they did not look like a bottom three side or anything approaching it, but they just couldn't score goals. And now we're seeing the same thing, even with Alex Neal's team with a different striker and Cameron Jerome uh, and, and the different types of uh, formations they played. So um, they're going through a rough patch, but. Um, Ultimately, their their survival might hinge on Bournemouth getting their get, getting their players fit and on uh, Newcastle showing some degree of consistency. Because I think we all have Villa penciled in for, or maybe not penciled in now, maybe it's <laughs> an ink for one of the relegation spots. I think Sunderland will get out because of, uh, of Allardyce. But those other two, if Bournemouth doesn't get their guys fit and Newcastle doesn't show any consistency in spite of today's result, those are probably the next two teams. Hmm. So maybe Norwich just escapes. You kind of alluded to this when referring to uh, Bournemouth. Uh, it seems like every year with the relegation battle, one or two teams' fortunes are defined by one or two good months. Leicester is obviously the example. Last year, we can remember some of the great escapes from the past. Uh, those teams just finding a way to click towards the end of the season to survive. And I, Norwich seems like that type of team to me, Kartik. And maybe that's me continuing to fall back on this feeling we've all had that this collection of players is actually pretty good. And it's easy for me to see this collection of players having a good run of games in March and April just by maintaining faith, maintaining consistency, and putting that together. At the same time, that seems a little bit intellectually dishonest for me. It seems like it's just another way for me to not admit I was wrong about that. No, but there's something there's something there, though, because uh, we, uh, Chris, Chris and I, Christopher Harris and I, the gaffer, got to sit with Franco DeSanto at Schalke last week when we were in mm -hmm. Germany and he was part of multiple relegation fights with and 
he mentioned to us, and I don't have the direct quote, but something along the lines of that one season where they beat, came behind from behind and beat Arsenal, and they, yeah. they had to get like seven or eight wins out of 11 matches, and they did it, that essentially they knew they had been playing below their ability all season, and once they came back to beat a big team, it clicked, and they just they got out. They finished 13th hmm. or 14th that year. So there, there's something to that, that teams we, we, we say, like last year with Leicester. Yes. Uh, at the beginning of the season, I sat, and I, I would rather people not look at my picks from the beginning of last season, because I said Leicester were going to finish 10th or 11th in the league. And they sat 20th for uh, three quarters of the season. It made me look like a complete idiot. But uh, something clicked. Obviously, Nigel Pearson gets a lot of credit for that, but they always had the squad to get out. And now we're seeing that same squad with one or two additions at the top of the Premier League. So I don't think our read on uh, Norwich was necessarily wrong. I mean, the the Leicester example proves to me that sometimes our instincts when people like you and I look at squads uh, tends to be accurate. Hmm. Well, let's talk about another team that on paper has a squad that should not be in this position, Swansea. How they've gotten to this point is remarkable and I think is defying explanation, at least in the moment. Because when you look player for player, they have a a pretty good team. But a 3-0 loss at home to Leicester, this momentum that seems to be anchoring them to the bottom of the table, and now they're only one point above the drop. What's your theory as to what's going on with Gary Monk's team? I'm out of theories now. Part of it was the selfish play of John Joe Shelby. Uh, maybe uh, the the health issues with Key and, and some other players, but the guys that need to now Jefferson Montero is back and and that's not uh, giving them the boost we you would want to see at the back they're making the kind of critical errors uh, that they haven't made in previous seasons you, you wonder a little bit about the sale of Ben Davies to Spurs a sale that was kind of a luxury buy for Spurs. Uh, Spurs did that for a couple of years, right? They were buying backup players in a lot of positions. And maybe he's better than Neil Taylor. Maybe he, he'd be a better left back as a lot of uh, the play that's coming up against them. We saw it with Mares this week. is coming from that side of the field. And I, I just don't know that, that Taylor, I'm not, not even sure if Ashley Williams is reading the game as well as he used to. Mm. Uh, that having been said, they're not scoring goals either, right, in some yeah. of these games. So uh, going forward, it's, it's tough to say because there's this history with Swansea of guys like Sinclair and Borini and Bone. We're seeing, we saw it again with Boney now. I'm hearing from Man City fans, hey, why don't we just start Inaccio when uh, Aguero's out? Because even though he's 18, he gives us more than Bone does. Uh, this long history of guys who have left uh, Joe Allen, although he had a pretty good game today, guys who have left Swansea and not replicated their performances elsewhere. Hmm. But what's happened when those guys were sold previously is the guys that Swansea would replace them with would replicate the performances of those guys. That hasn't, that's not happening anymore. So uh, that's uh, that. That is one of the unbelievable things right now about the Swans, and I'm not quite sure where Gary Monk goes from here. Hmm. Last break coming up, everybody. When we come back, we're going to update you on Germany. Talk to Kartik a little bit about his time at Bayer and Schalke. We're going to get our top fours in place. Talk about the teams that we haven't touched on nearing relegation. West Brom, Stoke, a little bit safer now, but also talk about Southampton. And then we'll also look forward to the games coming up in midweek. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Well, there's shock and awe in the Bundesliga this weekend as Bayern Munich finally lost a match. They'd fallen one other time this season, that game Arsenal took from them in the second half of the Emirates. And again on Saturday, it was the second half that was their undoing. 
Three goals in a 14-minute span from Borussia Mönchengladbach, the third by thriving U.S. international Fabian Johnson, had Andre Schubert's team up three in a route to a 3-1 win over the Bundesliga leaders, who now have a five-point lead on Borussia Mönchengladbach. Schubert probably deserves a thought or two here. When he took over for Lucien Favre after five games, Gladbach was last in the league, they didn't have a point, and they were kind of searching for answers because they didn't want Favre to leave. But he insisted on leaving, vaulting Schubert to the coach's role, and the team hasn't dropped a league game since. In fact, their only loss was a 2-1 home defeat to Manchester City in Champions League, a pretty remarkable outlier considering they've played Juventus twice since then. They're now third in the Bundesliga, and they may be the most dangerous team about to drop from Champions League to Europa League, and they've become one of Europe's feel-good stories again. Uh, Kartik, all of that leads me to a question I want to ask you to put this in perspective. Neutral field, the game is tomorrow. How many teams do you think in Europe could actually beat Gladbach at this point? Barcelona, and that's it. Uh, Juventus had two shots and they didn't. Mm -hmm. Manchester City, by the way, that game is not only an outlier. That is the first time Pellegrini in his tenure has admitted that Manchester City had been outplayed in the game they won. Wow. So Richard Gladbach took the game to City. Uh, City very resourcefully got the goals they needed in the second half to come from behind. Uh, Gladbach didn't get the second goal when they were up 1-0 and they should have. They were all over City. But uh, I, I watched this game and Richard Gladbach in the second half, their movement was so precise. Now, granted, we should mention Bayern is, are dealing with a lot of injuries currently. Well, just like everybody, it seems like we're talking about, have a lot of injuries. But uh, they, they've been opened up uh, at the back now often in Bundesliga without conceding a lot of goals. And, but this game, once the, uh, the dam opened, it, it flooded out. And what we saw from Fabian Johnson, this is of interest to our American listeners, was a player, and we've seen this over the last couple of weeks, a player that is, is running riot, coming in from a wide position on the right side with Mucha Gladbach, kind of floating, going forward, not having the defensive responsibilities he does with the United States, and scoring goals. He scored four or five goals now in the last... Uh, last couple of weeks uh, between Europe and uh, and the league. And, and he was uh, involved in all the build-up play here for Mucha Gladbach yesterday. The thing I would note is, of course, he plays often on the back line for the United States because the United States doesn't have good defenders. So uh, Cameron, who we mentioned, was very good in the midfield, linking up with Boyan at Shakiri at Stoke, and then Fabian Johnson, who's on a tear right now with Mucha Gladbach, end up playing on the back line for the United States because the United States does not have good defenders. I would say Johnson is playing as well. As any Europe, uh, any European American since Dempsey was at Fulham, which is as good as yes. any any American has ever played in Europe. So, I think that we're probably not yeah, talking about Fabian say, Johnson enough. Yeah, I would say since uh, maybe Claudio Reyna had one really incredible season at Wolfsburg, which got mm -hmm. him a transfer to. Um, to uh, Rangers, but uh, Leverkusen, Leverkusen owned him. It's complicated, and they sold him in the middle of his loan period at Wolfsburg. But um, to cash in on him, but yeah, this is about as well as anyone has played in a long period of time. There were games, there were stretches when John O'Brien was fit at Ajax, where he played really well. Mm -hmm. uh, Demarcus Beasley had a stretch at PSV where he was playing very, very well. Donovan at Everton. Uh, yeah, well, that was a loan period. So very short, very short period of time. Short, yeah, but he did play very, very well in, in one of those two loan periods. But this is a, a remarkable run for an American player in Europe, and, it, and it's giving some optimism around the pool because you, you, we've mentioned Cameron a couple times in the show. You mentioned DeAndre Yedlin earlier. I am impressed that he's adjusted to, even though he got beat on Campbell's goal, that, yeah. that had a lot of that had to do with Ozil's ball. Yeah, but, he, got, he got hung out to dry a little bit there, but he should have done better. He got hung out to dry. He should have done better, but he's he's adapted to Big Sam, and he, his, he was not going to play, it seemed, at all under Advocat. But yeah. going to this 
deployment of wingbacks under Allardyce has gotten Yedlin some calls above Billy Jones at that, at that left back, right back or right wing back position. So uh, it's now beginning to work for Americans. John, John Brooks had a goal I saw against Leverkusen yesterday. So uh, uh, first goal for Hertha all season off of corners. Uh, things are beginning to work out for the Americans that are over there. Alfredo Morales, I should point out, has played pretty well for Ingolstadt also. Mm. Now, does this mean that we're going to see uh, uh, more Americans finally go to Europe at the end of the season? I want to see Darlington Nagby in Europe next season. I'm going to say that right now. I know uh, people in Portland where you are, Richard, are in love with the guy. I think he's that next-level yeah. player that the U.S. needs to jump to a club like that and develop uh, – the skill set that he doesn't have right now. He needs to push himself a little bit too. I want to see Bill Hamid in Europe because the U.S. Yeah, that's another one. The yeah. U.S. needs a goalkeeper pretty badly at this point. Uh, Kartik, uh, weekly tradition, our top fours. You're up. Okay. Um, let's uh, let's go. Okay. So on form, one Lester, two. <laughs> After this Arsenal weekend, there back. is no form. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, I, I don't know that I want to put Arsenal back in there because uh, they, they lost last week. So, two, uh, maybe uh, we go Everton because they haven't played yet this yeah. week. <laughs> two, Everton. Three, uh, Manchester United gets results, right? They keep getting draws. So, maybe they just work it out there. And same thing with Spurs. They keep getting draws. So, that's three, four. So, end of the season. Whew, this is tough. I guess I'm going to go one, Manchester City for one more week. Uh, two with a caveat. If Von Gaal finally gets it figured out, United should win the title this year. Two Manchester United, three Arsenal, four Spurs, with Liverpool really knocking on the door and me beginning to entertain the thought that Leicester might be in that top four at the end of the season. I, I think then there's a drop-off uh, after the, the, the two other teams I mentioned, Liverpool and uh, Leicester. Yeah, our top fours are very, very similar. In form, I have Leicester, Spurs, United, Everton, the same four, just kind of in different order. And who cares about form after this weekend? As far as end of the season, I, I think this might be the same way you're looking at it, Kartik. I'm looking at how these scenarios are likely to play out. And I'm, I'm following a lot back on what we've seen these teams do over the last few seasons under these managers, how we see them playing this year. And that's why United keeps coming up for me and you, because out of all the things that we've seen transpire with the way that these teams have been managed over the last few years, Van Hall getting this team to play better from, say, February to April seems like one of the most viable scenarios at this point. I'm going with City 1, but for the first time in a long time, I have Manchester United number 2. Arsenal number three, and I have Liverpool number four because I find it a little bit easier to believe that Jurgen Klopp is going to make up those points uh, rather than Spurs. Okay, Kartik, we have another piece of feedback. Uh, this is again from Robert from Twitter. Uh, he's asking us about next week's fixtures where Leicester play, uh, his word, scrappy Chelsea. And we keep coming back to Chelsea. We haven't talked about Chelsea very much in this podcast because they're just out of that relegation debate. But at this point, I have no reason to believe Chelsea is going to beat Leicester. You know what? Before this weekend, I thought, okay, that's that's one of these correction games. I told you about the seven-game stretch. I was thinking of Leicester. Hmm. And, okay, Chelsea, they're beginning to get their, get around it. They're beginning to, 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 to build something again. And that's a game they'll win, and Leicester, will, the wheels will come off. But now, after watching both their performances on Saturday, I'm thinking that the, the form table doesn't – and it's actually, it's not even the form table. It's the actual table. It doesn't lie at this mm-hmm. point. Leicester is that much better than Chelsea. They, they're not going to be able to defend Mares out wide. Uh, Drinkwater uh, has controlled that midfield. Uh, this Actually, Drinkwater is an interesting player because he wasn't one of the guys that 
maybe the only guy that's a core player on this team that's returning that wasn't really a favorite of uh, uh, Pearson's. Didn't play that much under Pearson, right? He was a guy uh, now that has really embraced uh, Ranieri's management and, and the role he's been given under Claudio Ranieri. And, uh, and then there's also the, the reality that nothing would satisfy Claudio Ranieri, who has gotten everything right this season, more than beating Jose Mourinho, who has spent a decade deriding him in the media in various countries. We, whether it be uh, here in England or in Italy, he's uh, made references to him in Spain, even though he, uh, he, Ranieri wasn't managing there at the time. So uh, I think Ranieri, Ranieri will probably beat Mourinho. I, I, there's, mm. <laughs> I, I would have said something completely different three days ago. I look at these two squads right now. I look at Leicester. There's only one player in Leicester that I think is playing below average, below the Premier League average player, which is a pretty high standard, and that's Wes Morgan. I think he's a good player, but I think he's a little bit below average for the league. For Chelsea, I think there's only one player that's playing above average for all the talents that they have. The only player that I can rely on that team is William. That's it. And so when you yeah. talk, when you talk about how these players have played now for four months. I just don't see it. You you saw Chelsea play Bournemouth this weekend. They were so much slower, so much had so much less intensity. Let a completely depleted Bournemouth team stay in that game. It was depressing. It was depressing for somebody that right. knows Cesc that Fabregas is one. Cesc Fabregas is one of the worst players in the league. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Not just one of the worst players on a big club. He just he doesn't move well. He's always losing his mark. He's giving the ball away a lot now. And then I look at Chelsea's back line. They're, they're just a mess. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on with Hazard either. Uh, he's showing some, some yeah. fight, some spark, but he's, the end product isn't there. And then you look at Leicester. Uh, every, everybody is, is hitting on all cylinders with that team. And we thought uh, that Gorkan Inler would be a core player, right? That would be the guy that would maybe lift them out of a relegation fight. Instead, he's very much on the fringes of a team that's uh, leading the Premier League. Kartik, one game we haven't touched on because neither team is involved in the relegation battle. It's probably the team, the game that deserves to have the least said about it. Manchester United, West Ham, we probably would have gotten really, really short odds on betting a nil-nil before this one. It ended nil-nil. I'm going to go back to a hot take here. I don't see what Manchester United loses at this point by changing managers. I don't see the team of this talent regressing. Because what are they regressing from at this point? At the same time, I see a team that's lacking energy, that's lacking initiative, and lacking desire that could probably do do something with a change of voice. And the only thing that kind of tempers my opinion on this is the knowledge that Louis van Hall does tend to do better in that second half of the season. But he also has this part of him that tends to flame out in the second half of the season. I'm starting to question more and more what's going to happen. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about this. In fact... Uh, John Cross uh, from from the Mirror said on a, on a program I was watching the other night that he thinks Von Hall is more likely to be sacked in season this season now than Jose Mourinho. That mm-hmm. Chelsea has made what, the decision for whatever reason they're just going to ride it out with Mourinho. Maybe it's contractual. Maybe it's about the supporters there who've all taken on Mourinho's personality. Well, all their but, players are bad too, and Manchester United's right. players aren't bad. You watch. Well, Mar- well, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah right. you watch Martial play. You watch Mata play. You watch Feinsteiger and Schneiderlin and Smalling and De Gea. These are good players that should be contending for a title. And in fairness, they're contending for a title. They're, it's just impossible for well, me to imagine that this team would be worse under another manager that Manchester United could reasonably get. Right. So Cross says basically if he doesn't beat Wolfsburg, he's in trouble. Wolfsburg in the Champions League this week away at the Volkswagen Arena, arena because he, yeah, he should be sacked for that. I mean, He should be, he should be sacked because it, it was an easy Champions League group. 
And the feeling is with the Premier League having this much trouble uh, at the top of the table with all the injuries Arsenal and Manchester City have had that Manchester United should have pulled away from them and they haven't. So that's the general sense among uh, the punditry in England and the general sense among people close to Manchester United. So he very well might get sat. You're not just throwing something out there. I know some of our listeners may, may find it hard to believe, but there are actual journalists in, in, in England saying the same thing Richard's saying, that uh, there is a very strong possibility that if he doesn't beat Wolfsburg and they're still sitting third, fourth in the Premier League, even if they're only a couple points behind Arsenal and Man City, and maybe Leicester will still be up there middle of January, that he'll be gone. And, and I am still hearing whispers, and I don't, I, I don't know much about how the power structure of Manchester United works. I don't know whose voices are strongest there, but I'm still hearing whispers from people that know that there are people at Manchester United that are direly disappointed in how the team is playing. Now, whether those voices are the ones that are eventually going to make the decision or influence the decision, I don't know. But the feelings that fans have around Old Trafford are being replicated at some level within Manchester United's hierarchy. Uh, quickly, Everton versus Crystal Palace tomorrow. I'm really looking forward to this game. It does seem like a game that Everton has been losing lately, particularly with Crystal Palace's ability to sit back, play without the ball, and still control a game that way. Yeah, again, this is something we've talked about time and time and again on this show, that part of teams go through these these cycles of being down and up and that happened at Newcastle consistence, happened at Palace since he took over. Assuming that 5-1 win over Newcastle was an outlier, they're now back on one of those upswings, so I would expect them to win this match. Midweek Champions League on Tuesday, Manchester City versus Borussia Mönchengladbach City. City can still take first place, but they have very little to play for there. Uh, Wolfsburg versus Manchester United. Wolfsburg win that game. They could put Manchester United into Europa League. Wolfsburg lost at home this weekend to Borussia Mönchengladbach. On Wednesday, Chelsea versus Porto. Chelsea has not secured their place in the knockout round there. But the big game that everybody is looking forward to amidst this sea of uncertainties for the Premier League is Arsenal's visit to Olympiacos. Kartik, I'm not going to pretend like I'm an Olympiacos expert based on what we've seen in Europe over over the last couple years. They certainly seem like a capable team, uh, certainly if history is any indication, capable of tripping up Arsenal. I, I don't know where I would put my money on this one though. I, I think this is why I'm not a betting man. I don't have a good feel for this game. I'm not going to be surprised by any result. No, nor am I. I. I could very easily see Arsenal winning 4-1 and advancing or I could see Olympiacos gutting out a 1-1 draw or uh, actually a 1-0 Arsenal win will not put Arsenal through. So yes. I could see that result too. So these two teams have played a lot in Champions League. For some reason, they're always in the same group. We see these these patterns with teams always being grouped together <laughs> in Champions League over and over again. Manchester City's been in uh, Bayern Munich's group of three times in four, in four years. So there, this is a familiar matchup for Arsenal. But still, I don't know. I don't know what to, to say. I think maybe slight edge to Olympiacos simply because they're at home and they can get out of there with a draw in advance or even one goal loss in advance. Hmm. I I can completely see that. Uh, I would like to see, I would like to say I see Arsenal just putting it all together and playing to their talent level, but in a big game where everything's on the line, when was the last time Arsenal actually did that? We see them, we see them win first or play well in first game legs at home against Bayern or Barcelona and then go on the road and not seize that potential. I don't know. Well, I even, we even saw it in the FA Cup final against Hull a couple of years ago when they fell back behind 2-0 and were very fortunate to get the extra time and won an extra time. And uh, last year, yes, they took uh, Villa uh, out early in the FA Cup final. But remember, they never they, they were very fortunate to get past uh, Wigan or Reading or whoever. Uh, Reading in the semifinals. It was Wigan yeah. the previous year they were fortunate to get by. So and they gave, they, Birmingham, uh, they gave Birmingham City that cup. 
Right, right. Over Femi Martins, who we're very familiar with now, uh, covering MLS, who's a great player in our league. Uh, he score, he give, gets, he, he goes down in history of scoring a winning goal in a cup final at Wembley. You will never get an easier goal than that yeah. to finish and put your name in lights. So I, I have no faith in Arsenal. And then uh, on the Manchester United end, this game against Wolfsburg, they, um, I, I don't know. I don't know what the m- mindset and mentality is in that dressing room. They should be able to go there. I watched Wolfsburg against uh, Borussia Dortmund this week. I wasn't very impressed by them no. uh, as well as they played this season. Uh, Dortmund uh, got the, the late winner from Kagawa, former United player, but uh, Dortmund really controlled that game. Uh, but I, I don't know. The, 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 one, the one other thing I should mention, Richard, is that there is a lot of discussion that there is unrest in the dressing room at Manchester United because of the things we're talking about. The players know they can be playing in a more, uh, in a better way, in a freer style, and expressing themselves a little more than, than what Von Hall's tactics uh, allow them to. And this, this reminds me, obviously the results are much better, but the top of the league is much weaker. This reminds me a little bit of Roy Hodgson's stint at Liverpool. He came in after the team had tanked under Benitez, and Hodgson tried to fit those players, some very expressive, creative players, into a very structured system, mm-hmm. and it didn't work. Now, as it turns out, things got worse under Candy Daglish. Uh, Liverpool fans won't want to admit that. But uh, it, uh, the same things that were being said about Hodgson and the type of, uh, type of uh, uh, square peg round hole thing is now being said about Van Hal. And that's, uh, that's a reality. Uh, although the, the flip side of this is Manchester United defensively uh, and with De Gea and goal, they, don't, they haven't given up many goals. I mean, mm. they, they probably have the best defensive record in any major European league over that period since mm. De Gea came back. Mm. Well, the one thing that jumps out to me about this game is this could be a match where the acquisition of Bastian Schweinsteiger proves very important, uh, not only for his leadership qualities that he brings to the team, but the familiarity that he's going to have with this particular trip midweek. Well, everybody, thank you very much for joining us. We're going to be back with you next weekend where the format will return to normal. Not only will we be talking about the top of the table first and some of the stories there, but hopefully we'll have our third co-host, Lawrence McKenna, with us. But until then, I'm Richard Farley for the rest of World Soccer Talk saying, Kartik? Unless you're Jose Mourinho, you're enjoying your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of WorldSoccerTalk.com. For more information on the show, check us out at WorldSoccerTalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at WorldSoccerTalk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at LawsCast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.